The CFB Winning Edge podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. For as little as $5 per month, you can help keep the show ad-free while also helping to fund our annual updates to our 2021 FBS team profiles. On that note, our Tier 2 Patreon supporters receive access to our daily updated depth charts, including transfer and injury news, other personnel moves, as well as individual player ratings, coach and team performance history, in-depth returning production numbers, power rankings, and point spread projections, and much more for all 130 FBS teams. Visit patreon.com slash CFBWinningEdge for more details. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. Joined, as always, by Nicholas Ian Allen, the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. And Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about uh, Nick put out some CFF rankings on CFB Winning Edge here recently. Some strength of schedule some transfers, and of course, we have another stat to talk about today. But Nick, how's it going, man? How was your uh, week? Uh, pretty good. Went uh, out of town for a few days for my wife's birthday and took a little yeah. bit of a uh, mental break, which was nice. Accidentally uh, left my phone charger at home. So uh, in, in small town Vermont, you can't actually buy an iPhone charger anywhere. So, like, we have some uh, more maple syrup here, but no right. iPhone chargers. So I, you know, I was without my phone for the, the better part of, of 24 hours, which is definitely different than what I'm used to, but it, it wasn't Ooh, the worst thing itchy. in the world. But uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it was good to get away for a few days, but uh, was also able to uh, put together a, a couple of things that had been, uh, that had needed to be done, finalized CFF rankings uh, for you know our, our friends who are into college fantasy football. And then somewhat relatedly could be used for CFF, could be used, of course, for, for a variety of things. But uh, our strength of schedule has been, it's been in our FBS team profiles for uh, basically since we, we hit publish uh, first, first uh, opened up to our patrons this year, but I hadn't yet connected all the, the pieces of each individual page to, to put them all together in, in one nice clean list. So uh, it was good to, to get that together. Didn't take very long, of course, but uh, hadn't really, you know, dived into the toughest schedules, the weakest schedules. So interesting to see there are, you know, there are some, uh, some teams that are going to, it's going to be very difficult for some teams that we expect might be, you know, tough for them to to make it to a bowl. Maybe would really really like to get to a bowl this year. Uh, maybe for you know coaches to be in a better situation. Some teams in that you know bucket are are facing some pretty tough schedules. But then on the flip side, two of our easiest schedules. I thought it was interesting to see uh, were two G five teams that I think could be conference champions, but don't really right now look like the favorite to be a conference champion. So, you know, looking at, they've got a, a pretty manageable schedule, at least as far as our numbers go, their team strength against their roster strength against all of that. A uh, couple of, 
couple of names to maybe, you know, take note could be uh, the difference maybe between them, you know, making it uh, to a conference championship game or not. Yeah, and, and you know, breaking down the schedule is always interesting. I know it's one of Xavier's favorite exercise, but Xavier, I think you know, look, Nick and I, uh, I think Nick better than me, but I still think I can make it a full day without a phone. Uh, we're just from that wow. era. You're really gonna uh, pull this card? Yeah. Do you think you could make it 24 hours without your phone? Okay. Now, when I when you ask that question, I don't have. Or am I saying 24 hours without technology or just without my phone? Just without think, the phone. I think oh, Nick, you, still, you still had technology, right? You still had a computer in, or something? So I did have my laptop with me, but uh, as as uh, bad luck would have it, uh, like the internet at the hotel went out for like the whole day? 12 hours. <laughs> wow. So, so there, was a, there was a chunk in there where- Was there a TV uh, in there? There was, but there was also this. This was a very relaxing vacation. Time at the pool. Time walking around town. Time uh, did get got a massage. It was it was oh, a nice yeah. relax. There were there were things to do. Oh, uh, I, do I wasn't I wasn't at a loss. But um, if if I had just been sitting at the room, yeah, there were, yeah. options were limited for a chunk of the time. I could do that. Yeah. You give me you give me twenty four hours, but with things on the agenda, without my phone, absolutely. See, Scott, you, you made it too easy. As long as I have my computer, I'm a Mac guy, so my computer oh. is just an extension of my phone, so I can still oh, make phone calls and text messages from said computer. But I'll, I'll give it to you. I could not go twenty four hours without technology. My life just revolves too much around it. If even if I tried, God forbid, I'd probably just sleep the whole time. I definitely, it would be a struggle for me for sure. Right. Because like, I don't know. I go like, uh, I get itchy. Like, all right, it's been mm -hmm. 20 minutes. Let's see. Let's see what's new on Instagram. All right. It's been 20 minutes. Let's see what's new on Reddit. You know what I mean? Like uh, I, I, sometimes I get into that, you know, high functioning ADHD, uh, type of territory where I have to look at something or, uh, listen to something. So I, I might, I might actually be worse off than you, even though I am, uh, the elder here, but the elder um, statesman of the pod. Yes, of course. But um, <laughs> let's talk, let's uh, talk about this stuff. So, you know, first of all, Nick, you and I did a CFF draft yesterday. Uh, you used your rankings. You, you said there were a couple uh, personal adjustments you would make, but your initial CFF rankings are just the numbers, right? Yeah, the, the first go round, uh, I, I wanted to sort of let let the numbers speak. And uh, there are a lot of you know folks out there in, in the CFF industry who put a lot of time and effort into uh, their rankings, do a great job. Some are more opinion based. Others are you know much more uh, past statistical performance, that sort of, uh, you know, mindset. I, of course, if you're familiar with our, our FBS team profiles, we already have individual ratings for every player. That's their talent projection coming out of high school or, or junior college weighted by their experience and their career production. So that already gives us one piece of information to work with. But of course, CFF, it's not, you know, how good of how good are you at football? It's how how do you you know, certain systems matter a whole lot. Uh, we're talking yardage points, you know, all, all that sort of stuff uh, really outweighs the importance of just overall 
talent and experience and, and all of that. So we do use our player ratings. We do use our production points. I, I always try to look at uh, like production points per game played or per snap, things like that, and, and factor that in. I do factor in the raw talent some, uh, but I think, you know, more important than that, the strength of schedule. And that's what really kind of uh, <laughs> finally got me the, the kick to say, oh, yeah, you need to do that strength of schedule thing uh, is because that's that's important. You know, if you're yeah. uh, uh, talking about a, a player at, you know, UTSA or uh, Western Kentucky is, is a, uh, a hot topic of a team in the CFF world uh, because of their influx from the FCS, uh, Houston Baptist, new offensive coordinator, quarterback, several receivers, they're going to look very, very different. So, you know, taking those types of things, our, our offensive coordinator ratings, our strength of schedule ratings, uh, throwing that into the mix, also looked at, you know, where did a player himself finish in last year's CFF standings, like points per game, total points, all that sort of stuff, but also where did his role finish? So if a new, you know, if running back number one is off to the NFL, but the new guys coming in and, you know, the system's the same, the offensive coordinator's the same, you would expect a similar amount of usage kind of taking that RB1 for that particular program and using that piece of information, you know, translate it to the new player. So even if somebody might be a little bit lower rated because they just haven't played as much, still factoring all that in. So, yeah, I, I tried to put everything together. And this is the, what's the at least the third year I've done this maybe with, with CFF rankings. Yeah. I lose track sometimes. But it, it's been a similar process each year. And then the, the second go-round – uh, there will be more official statistical projections. That's like the last big thing that we've got to do this summer. Uh, that'll be done in July. So these, I think, are good. As you mentioned, I used them uh, during the the mock draft we did. Our, our buddy John Lobb put together. Uh, just went, you know, for the most part, best player available using my rankings pretty strictly. Uh, but yeah, there, there are a few few players I personally am a little bit higher on than than sort of the way uh, they shook out. Uh, you know, one uh, one thing I thought was interesting in in my wide receivers, I think differed quite a bit from what sort of the consensus thought is out there right now. I have both Ohio State receivers that their top two guys Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave in the top six of my wide receiver rankings which is you know yeah if you were thinking okay just the best wide receivers in college football or the uh you know if we're talking NFL draft or something right right that might make four, seven sense. rating yeah yeah sure mm -hmm. but right now two from the same team in the top six you know they're gonna have to with split. a new quarterback right right exactly so so I might you know, I, I could certainly see one of those guys being a top five receiver, but it's going to be very, very difficult for both of them to be a top 10 guy. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd make some tweaks here Little and tweak. there. Right. Uh, yeah. Jalen Robinson from UCF is is uh, 16th in my receiver rankings. He's been like a top 10 receiver in a lot of mocks. You know, maybe mm -hmm. that's pushing it a little bit, but he's been going really, really early. Uh, at least he was was early on. I'm a little scared at, you know, what do we, what is that Gus Malzahn offense actually going to look like? How's that going to translate? So yeah, there, there are little, little adjustments I would make. And, and I, 
I will uh, update these, of course, as always, based on transfers and injuries and all that good stuff. But they will get official statistical projections mm-hmm. added to the mix later in the summer that, that might cause a few to, to move up and down a little bit. And then seeing how things play out, I, I might go through and manually <laughs> put, a, put a couple of guys up and down mm-hmm. just, just as a final touch. But this set is, a, I think, a good starting point. And it is just, this is what the numbers say. Uh, put a lot of, of information in there, see what spits out. And, you know, maybe there are some guys that I just wasn't paying as much attention to that maybe I should now who are a little higher based on what the numbers, you know, do say. Very understandable. Very understandable. Well, uh, let's get into the strength of schedule because my first running back was Austin Jones and Stanford is listed here with the toughest schedule (laughs) in the land, Nick. So uh, let's get into it and just kind of explain to us how we get to the strength of schedule number that that you have do talk about that first sure so in our fbs team profiles we've got a team schedule and preseason projections area it's kind of in the dead center of the google sheets and there are uh five different schedules four of them are looking ahead to 2021 one of them is looking back how did how did things go uh last year but there's a a ton of different information there where you can see you know week by week each opponent's team strength their roster strength their head coach rating their team performance rating overall and then it's broken down in, in the next schedule down same Schedule, same setup, but the information changes to where it's just defensive uh, information. So the the average uh, 247 sports composite rating for the defense, the defensive roster strength rating, the defensive coordinator rating, the defensive team performance rating from, from last year. So as you're going through, and there's you know offense as well on the, on the next one, and then the talent edge that we've talked about before, talent only model, uh, just has overall roster strength, a three-year recruiting strength, uh, weighted average, 247 roster, rivals roster rating through the whole roster. Anyway, so we, we break them down into all these different categories so you can see, you know, okay, this is uh, based on our overall power rating. This is the average rating that each team faces uh, based on our roster strength rating. So how talented is each team? This is the average based on just, you know, pure talent metrics. This is the average. So we, we take all of those and we put them uh, together on one, you know, one through 130 uh, rankings page. So you can see, you know, Stanford plays just based on team strength average, the toughest uh, schedule in in college football. I mean, they don't play any group of five opponents, uh, so that that's a big part of it. Uh, they don't, you know, there's no easy game. Uh, they play. Let's see. Let's get the specific schedule up here. Kansas State, Vanderbilt, and Notre Dame in non-conference play. You know, Kansas State and Vanderbilt aren't heavyweights as far as recruiting or or anything like that, but their roster strength numbers are still going to be, you know, in the fifties or or sixties. So they're not not playing and Mary, you know, for the exact not playing up against every year and an FCS opponent. Uh, Mm, 
there's just no you know super easy non-conference game. Plus, you throw Notre Dame in the mix, who of course has been a playoff team in in uh, the past and nine conference games. You know, people like to to talk about the Pac-12 being a, a weaker conference, but I I personally think it's going to be a pretty good year for I agree. Twelve and and Stanford is in the north, has to play Oregon, Washington. Uh, they also get crossover against Utah, UCLA, mm-hmm. and USC, who you could argue are the three best teams in the south. It's just a really really tough schedule, so it's not a surprise at all that the average team strength rating. Stanford faces is the highest in the country. The average roster strength rating uh, that Stanford faces is is the highest in the country. Uh, it breaks down by offense and defense. They play uh, the most talented group of offenses in the country, uh, and they play. Uh, they have a little bit easier. So maybe you, as a an Austin Jones uh, drafter, it's it's a little bit easier the defense they're going up against. It's only uh, the eighth most talented uh, average of, of defensive uh, teams. Top 10, but and then yeah. uh, ranked 40th in average defensive team performance. So maybe, maybe okay. there's a little hope there, but, but I mean, I figured they're tough. still playing PAC 12 defenses for the most yep. part. So, you know, yeah, but uh, they're we, playing good PAC 12 defenses. That's Utah, true. Washington, it, it, it's, Oregon. It's, right. It's right. a tough slate. It, it, it is. It is a tough slate. I just like, it's a little surprising for me. And look, plenty of SEC teams come in right behind uh, Stanford, right? I mean, Arkansas and South Carolina are the next two teams. It's just a little surprising to see not one of those bottom barrel SEC teams up at the top because they have to play all the other SEC teams. You know what I mean? So, or a, a lot of other SEC teams, obviously not all of them, but um those schedules always seem worse to me. And, and that's kind of how it comes in for the next two, Nick it's uh, South Carolina, Arkansas as the second worst South Carolina as the third worst. So talk about their schedules a little bit. Yeah. I I looked back briefly at at our rankings last year, South Carolina, uh, before we had the, the, you know, major reshuffle of schedules uh, ranked number one in, in, strength of schedule as far as toughest schedules go. They do have an FCS opponent. Uh, they do have, you know, East Carolina, not the toughest non-conference game. Troy, probably not the toughest non-conference game. But the in-state rivalry against Clemson is about as, as tough as you can get as a, an annual non-conference opponent. And then an SEC schedule that includes a lot of heavy hitters. You know, they they play the, the East, which is the – uh, weaker side, uh, arguably, but Georgia early on, we have, you know, there are number two team in the, in the country. Florida is a top five, top six type team. And then crossover opponents, Texas A&M and Auburn are not at all easy. So uh, that's a, a very, very difficult slate. Arkansas, once the, sh- the schedules were reshuffled, looked like they had the toughest maybe the toughest schedule in college football history. I remember uh, there was a lot of talk about that uh, just before we, we kicked off the, or the, you know, had the late kickoff to the season, but this, this schedule, not much easier. Texas we've talked about as a, a, a high profile non-conference game uh, in early September. Rice is a, 
not a super talented team, but, you know, had a pretty good team performance rating, defensive team performance rating especially helps, you know, boost them a little bit. Georgia Southern has been a bowl team. They do play an FCS opponent in, in Arkansas Pine Bluff, but uh, the SEC West, very, very difficult. They get Georgia as a crossover. Uh, and then Missouri, who looks like a top half uh, SEC East team. So again, yeah, the the there are no for for those two very difficult draws in the crossover. In addition to playing a very difficult non-conference schedule already, and then throw in a an, a, a very very talented non-conference opponent and a couple of other tough opponents. Uh, it, it's you know, relatively easy to, to understand that, that those are going to be a, a very, very difficult schedule for, for both Arkansas and South Carolina. Javier, when you look at these difficult schedules, are there any that jump out to you or any names that you're surprised that are on this list? Well, I think uh, something Nick, I didn't mention about South Carolina was every year they get probably the two best one of the two top 10 teams in the country every year with them also you know I don't know if you mentioned Clemson but that's how they finish off their year and, and so when you have teams like this like South Carolina that have these crossovers the same thing goes for Georgia Tech which I'm a little shocked that's on this list uh because last year kind of like what Nick was saying about the Pac-12 a lot of people crapped on the ACC last year yeah um as far as competition was concerned but Clemson uh, Georgia Tech's one of those teams that they get a crossover game against Georgia, you know, so that adds to their strength of schedule. And I think, and for me, I think it's really great that they're on this list because I think that speaks to how good the ACC can be. And, and same thing that goes for Stanford because, you know, th- those are two conferences that people don't typically watch or typically think are, are competitive for these two teams to be on the toughest schedules in college football completely debunks that immediately, as well as UCLA being on this list as well. It, it, it you know, yes, they have tough non-conference schedule games, but the bulk of their schedule is made up with conference games. And so with that being the case, I think that's massive for those conferences to show that, no, coming into the year, these teams were playing the toughest schedules in their respective conferences, like the ACC, like the Pac-12. And it's not just the SEC. And, you know, what's funny is there's not a Big Ten team or a Big 12 team on, you know, in its five at all, which I think, you know, a lot of people would assume should be in, you know, maybe the top five for the toughest schedules in college football. Yeah, I don't like that Texas is seven on this list. I'll say <laughs> that. But uh, the the non-conference opponents are, you know, they open up against Louisiana Lafayette and then they play Arkansas. Uh, so uh, two strong uh, teams to open up, non-conference opponents to open up against uh, is what makes their schedule rough. And obviously playing against some of the good uh, Big 12 teams here, or uh, the, you know, they they play Oklahoma like every year. You know, TCU still good. Uh, Oklahoma State still pretty solid. Iowa State is awesome. West Virginia is pretty good, and that's a road game. So uh, I get it. Um, is there any more you want to talk about on the hardest uh, schedules yeah. here, Nick, or do you want to flip oh. to the? Uh, do you want to flip to the uh, the weaker ones? Oh, Xavier, you got some. Yeah, go I, ahead. No, please. I, I think you know, uh, and, and this, you know, obviously the guys can't see this, but. Uh, Navy's 26th hardest schedule in, in college football coming into next year. And I think that that's I – did, I did not see that coming. I, I did not see them being that close to the top 25 for difficulty in schedule. But it ta- talks to how good the AAC has gotten. Uh, I think Cincinnati, you know, they, they play Cincinnati this year. They play Memphis this year. They play UCF. I think it speaks volumes to how, you know, how good maybe the top half of the AAC has gotten. But it also talks to maybe the middle – 
part of the uh, the AAC, like a Tulsa, uh, you know, saying like a like a um, an East Carolina, like a Temple, who in the past I think a lot of people would think nothing of these teams, but I think for you to have Navy here and in the top and almost in the top twenty-five for toughest schedules in the country, then the middle has to be just as good or around as good as the top of the conference is. And so I really think that speaks volumes to how good the AAC has become over the last couple of years. That's an interesting point. I mean, Navy being the toughest uh, G5 schedule in the country, mm-hmm. at least according to, to our calculations. So uh, that that's a that's an interesting point uh, on. You know, I, I saw Georgia Tech on this list and, and it kind of jumped out at me because not not that I think Jeff Collins is in danger of losing his job, but I think pretty much most everyone can agree he needs to start – Georgia Tech needs to start showing some improvement. They've been talking a whole lot the last couple of years about, oh, we inherited, you know, a real difficult roster situation, had to change all our, our uh, you know, our scheme and, and all that's been uh, difficult. And, and, you know, they've, they've had some flashes, but they haven't really shown – you know, they haven't been a good, consistent team. And by year three, you expect, okay – you know, now it's time to, to win some games, time to push for a bowl game. But this is not the schedule, you know, that that at first glance looks like, OK, yeah, they're going to be able to make a, a big improvement in the win column. They do have winnable non-conference games to start against Northern Illinois, Kennesaw State, but three teams that they, in theory, you know, wouldn't have to play every year show up all at once this year. Clemson is a crossover. Uh, Notre Dame, they're playing for the second straight year. And then Georgia, uh, annual non-conference, didn't play last year, of course. But, but you know, in, in theory, if you could build your own schedule outside of your division or whatnot, uh, they wouldn't have to play those three teams, all of which have been college football playoff caliber or contending teams in, in recent years. And we expect Notre Dame probably to take a little bit of a step back, but Georgia and Clemson certainly look like playoff contenders at, at this point. So mm-hmm. that one jumped out at me at, at first, looking a little bit lower on the list about some, uh, you know, other guys who, who may be more so on the actual hot seat. Michigan ranks ninth in our average uh, uh, strength of schedule. And, and what I call just, strength of schedule we weight all the different factors where the team strength against counts the most but we also uh factor in the roster strength against and then offense and defense and and whatnot but uh michigan ranks ninth you know a couple of of relatively new head coaches carl durell at colorado got off to a great start but not right now has the eighth toughest schedule uh i i already expected them to take a little bit of a uh, step back but then knowing they've got a very very difficult schedule arizona new head coach jed fish 10th uh most difficult schedule in the country so you know there there are some uh guys looking to either put themselves in a better position to to uh, you know, for stability, like a Jim Harbaugh, who you guys uh, like to talk about as being on the hot seat <laughs> continually, and and I get it. Uh, but then also some guys who are relatively new on the scene, who you would love to uh, get off to a good start if you're Jed Fish. You would love to show continued improvement if you're Carl Durrell, and it's going to be really pretty difficult, sort of the way uh, things are are shaping up as it as it stands now.
Let, let's flip to the other end of that, Nick, and, and talk about the easiest schedules. And, uh, you know, I was looking through as you're talking and the, uh, the easiest schedule for a power five team is Kentucky and they're in the seventies, which means there is just a giant group of independents and G five teams, uh, from, I think it's, I believe it's 74 all the way down to one thirty. So, uh, talk about the, the easiest schedules, uh, in college football, if you would. Yeah. You guys give me a, a little bit of a hard time. Cause last year, uh, <laughs> our numbers did not like Kentucky very much at all. And, and I told you Hateful uh, a week or two Kentucky. ago that I, I, I had a feeling maybe this would be a, a <laughs> pro Kentucky podcast, uh, in, in 2021. And, and Finally. if these, if these <laughs> schedule numbers are, you know, to be believed, uh, the, the most manageable, power five schedule in the country you wouldn't expect i wouldn't expect it out of an sec team but you know they've missed some heavyweights uh from the west and you know that that's definitely beneficial louisville is a good team but if you're gonna you know you think about some of the in-state annual rivals for a lot of sec teams they're not the the toughest uh opponent they do get new mexico state they get uh, Chattanooga from the FCS. They start with ULM. New Mexico State and ULM are, are what one twenty nine and one thirty in our our power rankings. Plus an FCS opponent. I mean, that's about as good of a uh, or, or you know as easy of a, a non conference trio as as you can get. So uh, they do play LSU and and Mississippi State is their annual uh, crossover, but. They miss Alabama. They miss, uh, you know, Texas A&M. Uh, Ole Miss, I, I expect to be a, a tricky uh, matchup for a lot of folks this year. So that Kentucky schedule does set up pretty well. I'm glad you you pulled that one out. The two that jumped to my my mind immediately uh, when we're looking at, at easiest schedule, and I mentioned a couple of who I think could be conference championship caliber teams who are not right now at least the betting favorite Toledo in the MAC and UTSA Conference USA, and Toledo has, if not the most talented team in the MAC, it's very very close uh, with Western Michigan and, and maybe put Ball State in there. But expect Buffalo to take a step back. They were the betting favorite, or at least what the oddsmakers said is the the favorite uh, in the in the initial uh, odds that I saw. But I think Toledo. I would take a good hard look at Toledo there. And then UTSA, I think if if I were to just put together my own, you know, personal predictions, I was already kind of leaning UTSA maybe as the team to beat in conference USA. They're fourth in the conference in our power rankings, but this this schedule sets up really, really nicely in non-conference. Illinois is a beatable Power five opponent. They have uh, Lamar out of the FCS. Memphis, we've talked about before. Our numbers are are really low on Memphis compared to where they've been in years past. I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous about that because they've been consistently pretty good for you know a half decade or more. Uh, but I think that's a winnable game. And then UNLV at home, and and UNLV coming off a, a winless year and uh, under a first time head coach. So they've got. Some some tough opponents and and uh, you know projected point spreads they've got a handful right now within a field goal in our projections so they're going to have to you know tiptoe around some coin flips but uh, it's a it's a schedule that sets up well enough that UTSA I think could could certainly 
you know, we have them projected for a little fewer, you know, a little under seven and a half wins, but it would not shock me at all if this is a 10 win, you know, 10 and two regular season type team conference USA West uh, champions have an opportunity to, to go and, and play for uh, a conference title. So that one was really, really interesting to me. UTEP is number three on the list was an interesting team last year. We're able to get three wins, two of them against FCS opponents, but I, I feel like they did take a big step forward the way they were playing on the field. And then Wyoming, uh, you know, having the, the easiest schedule on paper in the mountain West is interesting because, you know, they certainly don't recruit at a very high level, but they are consistently, you know, playing above their their talent profile. That, that one made, made me even more mad that I missed Valaday in, in, <laughs> yeah. in our mock yeah. draft last night. So. Yeah, Val- Valaday, <laughs> I mean, going up against Montana State, Northern Illinois, Ball State, it's going to be tough. But then UConn in the non-conference, that's, that's a pretty, yeah. uh, you know, no power five opponents there. Uh, and then, you know, they do, of course, have to play Boise State. They do, of course, have to play uh, San Jose State in the uh, that's a crossover there. The the top two, you know, defending uh, conference division champions and then San Jose State, the, the defending champion. But a lot of winnable games. They are not a heavy underdog to anyone. I mean, Boise State is the only double digit favorite that Wyoming uh, faces according to our projections. So yeah, that, that's an interesting one. And then air force is, is fifth easiest and, and also very similar doesn't recruit, you know, well enough that the, the, the recruiting numbers, uh, show any, any sort of real strength there, but, you know, are a, a always difficult opponent also don't play a power five opponent, play an FCS team, play, you know, their two uh, main rivals in, in the service academies, but then also FAU, you know, difficult team, winning program in, in recent years. But uh, I think we can all all agree, took a step back without Lane Kiffin calling plays, especially mm-hmm. offensively last year. And, and Air Force is getting stronger. They're getting a handful of former starters uh, back who sat out, the 2020 season. So uh, some, some real interesting teams at, at the bottom there that a, a weak schedule, not getting, you know, uh, blown out by a power five power early in the year. You, you know, maybe you avoid one extra injury. Maybe you, uh, you know, don't have a, a major issue that, that uh, somebody suffers uh, loss of confidence or something. And, and, you know, maybe those things build up, add up to where, uh, you can get a, a win and a coin flip, get a, a win in a game that maybe you weren't expected to and kind of parlay that into a, a conference title run. So, uh, this, this group I think is more interesting to me than the toughest because, you know, I kind of, I kind of didn't expect us to be, betting on Stanford a lot this year, South Carolina, Georgia Tech. But looking at the other end, you know, maybe maybe some folks out there might not realize quite how how weak that UTSA schedule is or that Toledo schedule is. And and maybe our numbers will be able to to take advantage week to week before uh people catch on that, hey, maybe this is a legitimate conference title type team. Xavier, can I put you on the spot real quick? Absolutely. So when you look at these schedules, is there a team um, 
Is there a team that you say, man, this schedule might be too easy? Maybe, you know, if they drop one, they are now out of the running for the conference championship or maybe getting to a playoff or anything. Uh, and uh, ha have you have you seen a schedule like that yet? Uh, because there always seems to be one like that every single year. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think I love that you asked me that question because what I was going to bring up is that team. Cincinnati. <clears throat> Cincinnati's schedule is too easy for me. If, if they lose a game, because I think, and we all talked about this before, we all believe Cincinnati preseason will be a top 10, top 12 team coming into the year with the ability, if they were to run the table, to possibly make it to a playoff or at the very least make it to a New Year's Six Bowl. In my opinion, if they lose on their schedule, I mean, they really, in my opinion, they only have maybe one like okay loss, and that would possibly be the Notre Dame, but we'll see what that happens. Outside of that, every other game on their schedule, they have to win, and they have to dominate, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, with the 82nd ranked schedule, they, they have to make – get pretty known that they're not just a good team in the G5 level, but that they're the most dominant team at the G5 level, and they show that week in and week out. If they don't do that, their chances of making it to the playoff as the first G5 team to do so are slim to none. And if they lose, it's over. There, there's not going to get there, – there won't be an 11-1 G5 team to get in, not with right. that schedule. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick, do you agree with that? Because just looking at the schedule, you know, it's Miami of Ohio, then Murray State. Then they have their two probably – two of their toughest mm -hmm, games in mm -hmm. a row at Indiana and at Notre Dame. So, uh, but after that, it seems like it could be fairly smooth sailing for them. So uh, do you agree with that assessment that Xavier just talked about? Yeah, it would be very, very difficult for, for a non undefeated. It's probably going to be difficult for an undefeated Cincinnati team, even okay. if they beat Notre Dame in, in Indiana, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if they lose, you know, we haven't seen any evidence in the past to, to indicate that uh, they would be able to, to survive that and make a make a playoff run. I mean, the only scenario I could think is is if it's a last second loss in one of those, you know, Indiana or Notre Dame, or maybe even well, probably probably not a, a UCF or, or something like that. Anyway, if, if they lose one game to a team that is, you know. If it's Notre Dame, they're contending for a playoff. If it's Indiana, you know, they're second best in the, the Big Ten East, that type of thing. Uh, and then they're just dominant in the other games, depending, of course, what else happens across the country. But but I think short answer, yeah, I, I agree. It's gonna be it's gonna be close to impossible for a non undefeated Cincinnati or or any uh G five team. I, I would I would expect. Yeah, I, I'm with you as far as like, you know, I get stuff for a undefeated G5 team to make it. Yeah. So, you know, you have to beat Notre Dame and then hope for some other stuff to happen, which is asking almost always it's asking too much. It has been since we started the playoff in college football. Right. So uh, that's for sure. Uh, anything else to cover on the uh, the easy schedules here, Nick? Yeah, one, one thing that I mentioned briefly in kind of the transition when we were talking about CFF stuff, if, if you are into CFF, if you're into DFS, stuff like that, uh, this might be of use because we do break it out, you know, the, by unit, the teams that face the weakest defensive rosters, the teams that face the weakest defensive uh, team performers from the previous year. So you can think, you know, 
how well they played statistically. Uh, you know, there are a lot of MAC teams, of course, that that are playing weak uh, defenses. We expect a lot of scoring. Probably that was the case in in twenty twenty. We'd expect it to to carry over. But you know, teams like Toledo again are, are facing among the the weakest defenses in the country. Buffalo is up there. So if you think Buffalo is going to take a big step back with the coaching change. Well, they're they're probably going to be in a position to score a lot of points one way or the other. Uh, but uh, the first non-MAC team, the the fifth uh, weakest defensive roster uh, that they face is Utah State. That's kind of an interesting team to me in the Mountain West. I do expect that they will improve under Blake Anderson and and kind of bounce back a little bit after a really really disappointing year last year. So you know that we we we've seen those Blake Anderson uh, Arkansas State teams throw the ball a lot, put up a lot of points, put up a lot of yards, and it might set up to where, you know, facing some really uh, less than super talented defenses, you know, Utah State might be in a pretty good position to, to hit the ground running offensively there as well. So uh, that, you know, you can look at the flip side as well to see who's facing the toughest defenses, the toughest offenses and, and, uh, and all of that. But when I'm specifically thinking, you know, CFS, DFS, that sort of stuff, uh, I'm going to take a look at, at who's got the weakest opponents just as, as far as, you know, talent on the, on the roster or how well they played last year and, you know, might be able to, to pick up a valuable piece here or there. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it's a great point to make, and we'll we'll always, you know, during the ITLCFF podcast, we'll take a look at the uh, playoff schedules as well. Go ahead, Xavier. To I just want to throw another team in there from the question that you asked me that if they pick up a loss, is there chances that maybe the playoff done? I really do think if UNC loses this year, if they pick up a loss this year, their chances are very, very, very slim. Now they do get the. The, the you know they do get the boost of that they would play in the ACC championship game and have an opportunity to possibly redeem themselves, but when you look at their schedule outside of Miami and Notre Dame, as of right now, those are probably the only two ranked games on their schedule, and for me they would you know they would have to run the table. Uh, I, I, well, obviously, obviously they have to run the table because they would also have to be Clemson in my opinion to get into the playoff. But picking up a loss to any other team on their schedule, not name Miami and Notre Dame. Like if they were to lose to a Duke or if they were to lose to a, you know, a Wake Forest or anything Virginia like that. Virginia Tech, week one. Yeah, very true. I, I think that, that that would put, you know, put their playoff hopes in real you know, in a real dire situation. I mean, if you're going to lose a game, lose week one, right? So uh, it is way, way in the rearview mirror uh, when you end up yeah. getting there. But uh, Nick, are, are you are you in agreement with that statement from Xavier about uh, UNC? Well, I think UNC is going to have to worry about not losing four games. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. They replaced no. Kentucky this year. Uh. <laughs> right now, yeah, they are. UNC is is looking like our Kentucky. So, if if they, uh, you know, hopefully our our team performance ratings will react quickly if they. Do not miss a beat uh, based on the the players that they lost. But yeah, right now, North Carolina, I mean, the way our numbers at least shake out, uh, we're not expecting a playoff caliber team. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. but we'll see. We've been wrong before, as, as we all know. Anything else on the strength of schedule that we want to talk about, or, or are we ready to move to transfers here? Uh, I mean, the only thing, you know, 
plug plug uh, the Patreon. It, it's uh, we did compile compile all of these um, numbers into an Excel sheet that uh, all of our patrons have access to. Uh, can you know take that, download it, edit it, do whatever you want with it, um, and then that particular file won't be updated throughout the off season, but in our FBS team profiles, they update automatically. So anytime, you know, Joe Schmo transfers uh, and, and we see, you know, the, the schedule got 0.2 points easier uh, that, that updates automatically in our, in our FBS team profiles. And there's a spot in there, a page where you can see all 130 listed together. And then of course they are on uh, the individual pages as well. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about some of these transfers because we had some big news this week in transfers. And the first one is that Georgia got two big time guys, cornerback Darian Kendrick from Clemson and tight end Eric Gilbert from LSU. And, uh, you know, Nick, I I mean, Georgia gets two big time guys here. And uh, I mean, for CFF, I don't like the landing spot for Eric Gilbert because uh, the Bulldogs never seem to get uh, 100% of what they could out of those tight ends. But these are some big names moving to Georgia. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we, we've mentioned, of course, that Georgia is, uh, you know, for, for Xavier, certainly personal reasons rooting for Georgia. For me, <laughs> uh, a little a little less so, but mostly, you know, I'm, in, I'm invested in Georgia, both financially and because our numbers are really high on Georgia. Before this news, they were already number two in our uh, power rankings, both in in, uh, FBS and in the SEC. Uh, The secondary is, if you're going to be able to to point to a potential weak spot on paper, Mm -hmm. looks like the secondary, looks like the cornerback position specifically, I, you know, they were going to be fine. They were still a top 10 secondary in, in our uh, position strength ratings before Kendrick decided to, to transfer in. But depth is, is something that would be a concern. Inexperience is something that would be a concern. Kendrick is a guy that, you know, I don't know how serious it is, but I'd heard uh, some, the, the, the term first round was, was thrown around a little bit. You know, we'll see. It, it sounds like there's some off the field things that kind of, uh, you know, there, there's a reason why he left Clemson. Right, right. Uh, so we'll see. I, right now, I haven't even listed him as a starter. Just, you know, just to, to kind of hedge it a little bit, be on the uh, safe side a little bit, have him as the third corner and, you know, the, the top non-starter defensive back the way our, our numbers are. Um, lining up and and Eric Gilbert is is very similar. I mean, you know, uh, there's a reason he left LSU. Uh, there have been plenty of whispers, plenty of rumors. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I am not interested enough to dig super deep on on that. Me personally, but right now I'm taking a cautious approach. Don't even have him listed in the two deep, though. I would fully expect uh, that he would be you know, if not the starting tight end, you know, he and Darnell Washington. And it also sounds like maybe he's, he's actually going to uh, play more wide receiver than tight end, but I'm sure they would do a variety of things with him. Uh, but yeah, you know, from, from a just pure 
hey, two former five stars, two incredibly talented guys. Uh, Gilbert was the highest rated tight end in 247 sports history. You know, it, it's better for Georgia to get them than somebody else if you're mm-hmm. Georgia. Uh, whether or not they become big time, you know, instant impact starters, play up to that first round potential, uh, Georgia doesn't have to worry about. Gilbert landing it at Tennessee doesn't have to worry about uh, him going back to, to LSU if they were to meet in the uh, conference championship game or what have you. Kendrick, you know, could have could have ended up anywhere. I mean, he's a, a South Carolina native, so could have certainly gone, uh, you know, somewhere else in in the SEC and lined up against Georgia instead of you know being on the on the roster and, and in the secondary. So, as someone who is invested in in Georgia from a future standpoint, from somebody who I know we're going to be betting on Georgia a lot because there's only one team right now uh, ranked higher than them in, in our power rankings. Uh, it was, you know, it was good news to me. And, and yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see for sure if those guys can can capitalize on their potential because some of the whispers surrounding both of them, you wonder if, if that'll be the case. But they are certainly among the most talented players, especially if they're uh, respective positions in, in college football. So if a national title contending team, a conference champion contending team like Georgia can add two of those guys to the mix, it's it's only a good thing, basically. Yeah, Xavier, I know you're excited to talk about this, so I'll just uh, hand it right <laughs> off to you. Yeah, oh, I'm ecstatic. Uh, you know, obviously coming into the spring, well, the biggest issue we had coming into the spring was, you know, our, our secondary. And more importantly was the lack of veteran leadership we had coming back, um, also losing uh, – you know, guys like Tyree Stevenson in the in the uh, transfer portal as well definitely hurt uh, that <clears throat> that fact. And for us to get Darian Kendrick, obviously, was teased way early on uh, before you know before even our spring game had uh, had come and gone uh, that he was thinking about coming to Georgia. Then there was a, a talk that he was going back to Clemson. Then he finally has come to Georgia. And for me, it's just massive because, like I said, we needed a bona fide number one corner. That is what he's going to be for us uh, coming in. Uh, he was, you know. Pretty, pretty darn good at Clemson, and I'm, you know, ecstatic to see what he can do uh, with Kirby Smart. Definitely coaching him up while he's there. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, Eric Gilbert is so much more exciting for me because of the fact that we lost George Pickens. Uh, you know, he he is essentially, you know, going to help in, you know, replacing that type of production. Obviously, we know that, you know, Pickens won't be out the entire season, which is a, a boost as well. Uh, but to get a guy like Eric Gilbert in, yeah, yeah. Uh, but to get a guy like Eric Gilbert in, it, it's massive for us in that fact. And yes, I know Georgia is, you know, noted for bringing in five star tight ends and then not using five star tight ends. Uh, Isaac Nada obviously comes to mind when you say that. But I genuinely think, you know, and there was talk about it during the spring game and during spring practice that there was a more concerted effort to get Darnell Washington the ball. Now you get even more of a freak of nature in Eric Gilbert as well. That's going now, there's no excuse for JT Daniels at this point. There really isn't. You know, Pickens yeah. being out was a little bit of an excuse because he lost his number one receiver. You replace Pickens with a, another freak athlete, you know, on top of the receivers that are coming back, on top of Darnell Washington, on top of Zamir White and those guys in the backfield. JT Daniels has a plethora of talent around him now, and, and I'm ecstatic to see what he can do with that offense uh, now that we've added the addition of Eric Gilbert. Uh, because, in my opinion, losing Pickens was a massive because, you know, when you have when you lose your number one receiver, that's just uh, a huge deal for everybody else to then have to figure out their new role in the offense. I think Eric Gilbert can slot in and help with that, you know, that turnover with uh, Pickens not being around. Right. And, and uh, you know, uh, in another rich get richer scenario here. Yeah, but I'll take uh, this one. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, Kane Madden uh, transfers from Marshall over to Notre Dame. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is a guy, Nick, that is uh, extremely high rated on VGR plus and goes to a great scenario for his draft stock. So uh, I, it's a really smart move for him, I think. Yeah, and, and Notre Dame needed him. I mean, they lost, uh, what, four starters on, on the offensive line. Three of those guys were drafted. Another uh, is in camp right now. So, so you know, that's that's a lot of, of production. That's a lot of experience walking out the door. Only one uh, full-time returning starter from last year's offensive line. That's Jarrett Patterson. He was injured at times. They didn't know what position he would play, if he would uh, start at center, if he would start at right tackle. In the spring, it sounds like uh, sounded like Blake Fisher, a, a true freshman, was penciled in to start at left tackle. So, you know, they, they've got talent. Notre Dame already, before they added, uh, Madden had a top five offensive line, just as far as their average 247 sports composite rating at the position had a, you know, top 12 unit in position strength. Uh, again, before adding Madden, that number is going to go up a little bit, probably going to be top 10 unit uh, with him. He comes in as the highest rated uh, offensive lineman as the most experienced offensive lineman with 31 career starts. He put up 15 production points by himself last year, uh, just based on you know grading and and the way uh, the running backs performed at, at Marshall with uh, he and and his teammates clearing rushing lanes and and so yeah you know if you bring in a guy like that to solidify one of your guard spots, then hopefully you know if you're Notre Dame or, or a Notre Dame fan, everything else starts to fall into place a, a little bit easier. He played right guard at, at Marshall, uh, you know, could be there as well. Josh Lug, another guy who's played multiple spots, was, you know, I think experimenting at, at both right tackle and right guard in the spring. So, you know, we'll see. But you you find where Madden fits best, pencil him in, and then the other pieces will, will start to come together a little bit. And replacing just, I mean, the, the pure amount of experience and and – uh, that unit was was so, you know, the chemistry over multiple years, all those games started together. Um, all four of those guys had over 30 career starts. And to lose, you know, that amount of experience, uh, plus they were they were pretty good too. I mean, they were they were an offensive line that helped pave the way for uh, a, a college football playoff berth, an ACC title game berth. So it's a, it's a pretty big addition. And then similar to what I said, you know, with Georgia, it's good that you got them. So someone else doesn't well, right. Uh, Florida state, it sounded like was the runner up here, Florida state, you know, play host Notre Dame in week one. So uh, you've got him and, and that week one opponent doesn't that that's a, that's a pretty big win there too. Yeah. I mean, Xavier, what do you think of Kane Madden going to, to Notre Dame? And like, Nick said the the best part about this is that some of their opponents don't get him. Exactly, and that's it's massive. Uh, I think it's more of a loss for Florida State, as in we've I don't know since we started the podcast we start we've talked about how bad Florida State offensive line has been throughout that time frame, and to, for them to have been able to possibly get a, a guy of his caliber would have been huge, especially in protecting Mackenzie Milton. Uh, but Notre Dame got a you know got one heck of a kid here, and it's going to be funny. I mean. When he pancakes that first Florida State guy, 
I wonder <laughs> if he's going to look towards the sideline and be like, you could have had me, and then walk away. You know, <laughs> and he, he, come on. We're talking about college kids here. There's no way he's not, you know, they're, they're not going to remember that, you know, he possibly could have been a Seminole instead of, you know, an Irishman. So it's going to be fun to watch in, in week one to see if he can get on a couple of highlight reels. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be, uh, I mean, uh, I, I think it's just a great move for him going to Notre Dame. Oh, it's going to it's gonna move him high up in the draft if he has a good year. And then we have some other transfer news, not as big as those two pieces. LSU uh, lost running back Trey Bradford to the transfer portal. Alabama running back uh, Keelan Robinson, who was attempting to move to wide receiver, entered the transfer portal. Seems like Maryland is the landing spot for him. Uh, David Bailey, the former running back from Boston College, moves to Colorado State and reunites with his former head coach in Steve Adazio. So that's uh, good news for him. Running back Chesma Lucy went from Clemson to Wisconsin, and uh, he's going to compete with Jalen Berger for carries there. Uh, five players went from Buffalo to Kansas, including some uh, big ones in offensive lineman Mike Nowitzki and defensive lineman Eddie Wilson. Arkansas State landed uh, transfers from Alabama, Scooby Carter, the cornerback, and uh, Tennessee, the linebacker, Kevon Bennett, both with ties to Butch Jones. Also, they got uh, Iowa State running back Johnny Lang, former Old Dominion All-Conference USA defensive back Caleb Ford-Demmitt uh, committed to Washington State. He had uh, committed to UCLA a little bit before that, but it ends up at Old Dominion and then uh, or excuse me, at Washington State. And then Troy wide receiver Kalen Geiger committed to Texas Tech. That's an interesting one as well. So, uh, Nick, your thoughts on the rest of the transfer moves from this week? Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, one, I was, uh, you know, doing CFF rankings and then involved in, in multiple CFF drafts. David Bailey, when that news came out, uh, got, got some people excited because, uh, you know, Steve Adazio coached running backs have, have performed pretty well, have been given a lot of opportunities, uh, you know, to, to carry, to carry the load there and Colorado state really struggled last year running the football. Couldn't get, uh, you know, just couldn't get going. Of course, uh, small sample size, but, uh, I, I did update our, uh, team performance ratings uh, to, to break it out into passing and rushing. And Colorado State was 125th in rushing offensive team performance last year. So they were bringing back Marcus uh, McElroy. They were bringing back Ajon Vivens, former uh, wide receiver converted to, to running back. You know, both of those guys got 120 plus snaps, but you bring Bailey in, who's a, a big running back, bigger than, than uh, McElroy. Uh, you know, close to 240 and has familiarity with the offense already. Uh, the offensive line should be, you know, hopefully a, a little bit better. It's, it's definitely experienced. So that one, that one's interesting. So we, we should expect Colorado state to uh, show some improvement running the football with Bailey and, and with a little bit of, uh, you know, improvement on the offensive line there, the running backs, pretty, pretty interesting. Bradford, it sounds like Oklahoma might be in the mix uh, for him. I, I know that he was a kind of an under the radar for most of his recruiting process, but really kind of popped in his senior year. Um, got people excited. Sounded like, you know, coach Odron, uh, Ed Odron was pretty excited about him. So I think that they will, you know, they'll be fine. LSU's got plenty of talent there, but you know, might, might miss him a little bit. Might have an opportunity to make an impact. Robinson was recruited by Mike Loxley, 
at Alabama, is from uh, Washington, D.C., so that seems like a pretty perfect fit. That's certainly the rumor, uh, but it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, who knows if, if somebody else in that uh, part of the country might be a better fit if, if you're looking to move closer to home if you're Keelan Robinson. That did sound like it was the case with Kalen Geiger going to Texas Tech. He uh, is a Texas native, went to Troy out of junior college, caught a lot of balls, was targeted a ton. Uh, going to Texas Tech, going to have to you know uh, fight a little bit more for those targets, but Texas Tech's had some injury issues this spring. Eric Uzikanma uh, broke his arm during spring practice. It sounds like he's probably – or leg. He had a leg injury. Uh, Sir Roderick – or maybe that was a leg injury last year. I need to update these. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, no. I know Uzikanma has a – Uzikanma, he got hurt in camp. Yeah. Right, and, and, right. But he should, he should be back right around week one, which sure. is why I drafted him yesterday. You know, <laughs> sure. it, it was very, very late in the process, but I, as a as a monster, so he should be back. Yeah, I like him, but they all, they also had Sir Roderick Thompson, their top running back who's had uh, shoulder surgery. He's going to be, you know, limited in, in the, the start of fall camp. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Geiger's going to have an opportunity to come in, make a big impact, but there are, uh, there, there's a little bit tougher competition, especially in the slot. Guys like Miles Price, um, they've incorporated the tight end a little bit more uh, under Matt Wells. So, you know, not as many uh, four wide receiver sets and, and things like that, perhaps. So it, that one's that one's going to be interesting. want to see how that plays out. Uh, Malusi, it, it was, you know, to see him go from a situation where it didn't look like he was going to be the guy at Clemson, looked like he was going to be – at best, number two, maybe number three in the pecking order. And people are, are relatively high, I think, on Berger at Wisconsin, but the depth is just not there at Wisconsin like it is at Clemson. So, uh, you know, you, you think he's going to be penciled in as a solid number two with a chance to to maybe uh, steal some carries away from Berger. I'm not as high, I think, on on. Berger necessarily. I don't have a great rationale for that, but uh, just didn't necessarily jump out to me personally. So it makes me think that that he does legitimately, you know, Malusi might legitimately have a shot to go in and, and compete for carries. And we'll see if if nothing else should solidify a, a bit of depth in that uh, running back room that, you know, they don't have really anybody else who's who's played a lot. Isaac Garendo uh, had 13 snaps. Julius Davis had one snap last year, and those were the the top two most experienced guys on the depth chart at the tailback position. They've got some fullbacks who've played a little bit more, but uh, behind Berger, you know, who had 112 snaps. So uh, we'll see. That that one will be kind of interesting. You mentioned early on when all those Buffalo guys entered the transfer portal after Lance Leopold left that they were probably headed to Kansas. And I said, oh, not necessarily. <laughs> and I think all but one has. They, they lost an offensive line to Baylor, but pretty much everybody else so far has ended up at Kansas. So, you know, maybe maybe that'll help Kansas kind of narrow the gap between uh, the the last place in, in the Big 12 and, and that number nine spot. We'll see. But uh, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what's going on at Arkansas State. Butch Jones – has a reputation yeah. as a recruiter. Yeah. Uh, didn't necessarily translate to uh, consistent wins on the field at Tennessee, but 
he won a lot of games at Central Michigan, won a lot of games at Cincinnati, and you know now at, at Arkansas State, maybe maybe a similar spot. Maybe he's going to be able to uh, take you know in this case guys that he had a previous um, relationship with, whether it was when he was a, an analyst at Alabama or a head coach at Tennessee, and say, hey, you know, come on, we've got more opportunity to play. You're going to be more one of the most talented guys here, and and. You know, maybe that'll translate immediately to wins. Maybe, maybe you know, Butch Jones is just back in his comfort zone at a good uh, G five program where where you know he can put together a talented roster and, and win a lot of games. Uh, and then finally, I think I hit on all of them here. For Dimmitt, uh, you know, interesting player was a JUCO guy. Uh, went to Old Dominion, had a really productive twenty nineteen season was forced to sit out last year when old dominion didn't play, but didn't jump, you know, into the transfer portal immediately stuck around, but hasn't played in a year, then decided, you know, Hey, I'm going to, to take a jump to a, a power five program. Washington state has, has done some work in the transfer portal in the secondary. They certainly uh, could use him, could use a, a veteran player uh, who is, you know, talented and, and has been productive, uh, Ford Dement played over 700 snaps in, in 2019. So he's stepping in. That's about as much as the most experienced DBs uh, that Washington State has combined over the last two years. So hopefully he's not too rusty. Hopefully he'll be able to come in and might have a shot to, to start at corner opposite George Hicks. He'll probably compete with Jalen Watson for that spot. But, uh, you know, either way, would expect him to, to have an opportunity to play early and often and, and Washington state being, you know, their DB unit before this news ranked 12th out of the 12 pack 10 uh, pack yeah. 12, uh, secondaries, 111th nationally. So they're going to, you know, they're going to uh, come up just a little bit, but uh, the way that roster looks, at least on paper, doesn't necessarily stack up as, as uh, a particularly good unit. So, um, you know, he'll be a welcome addition, I would say. Xavier, your thoughts on any of these transfer moves? Which ones stick out the most to you? Yeah, I'm really excited to see what Trey Bradford does because, he, like Nick said, his recruiting really picked up towards the end of his high school career. Um, and he really, I think in that fact, he kind of picked LSU, I won't say haphazardly, but he definitely picked LSU kind of quickly, if that makes sense. Um, you know, he he originally didn't really sign with anybody. He took a couple of unofficial visits to uh, Oklahoma state Baylor, who was the first team who offered him and, and oh, Oklahoma state. And then he took three official visits to Wisconsin, Ohio state and LSU, and then just chose and then chose LSU right off the bat. Um, so I, I, I want to see where he decides to go after this. Obviously he's got the big 12 ties. So Nick, you know, alluding to Oklahoma is a possibility. Uh, maybe he does decide to maybe go to Oklahoma State, like I said, who he took an unofficial visit with, with the moves in Chuba Hubbard. There's going to be room there for possible carries as well. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of places that he could go that have that he's you know been in contact with before. So I'm really excited to see what he decides to do because I think wherever he goes, you know, he, he's definitely going to be looking to get touches off, off the rip. So I think. In my opinion, Oklahoma State, which is a team he's visited before, is a possible landing spot for him. Obviously, Nick, you alluded to Oklahoma, but you know, you talk about how much talent was at LSU. There's gonna be there's a heck of a lot of talent there as well, and they're gonna be wanting to compete right away. So the opportunities may be limited and may be given to guys who they more who they trust off the rip. Where at Oklahoma State, 
it might be more of availability to kind of get touches as they probably don't believe that they are, you know, championship worthy right now. Um, other than that, obviously, I love Chester Lucy going from Clemson to Wisconsin. I think you got to grab Graham Mertz as much talent as possible uh, going into year two. I think last year, he, you know, something that they struggled with last year, especially in some of their losses, was their ability to run the football. I think that that also lended to Mertz throwing more than I think I can remember most Wisconsin quarterbacks having to throw maybe ever last season. And I think that, you know, the more talent you get in the backfield and the more and the opportunity that you have to do more of the platoon swap that we've maybe seen from them in the past is a welcome addition for a guy like Graham Mertz, who in year two were expecting to be better than he was in year one. Somberly, I'm excited to see what happens at Arkansas State. Obviously, you know, they're, they're in the Sun Belt, so for them to be picking up this kind of talent doesn't necessarily help, uh, you know, my, my alma mater. Uh, or, I'm sorry, my – yeah, my, my alma mater. So I, I, I like what Butch Jones is doing. I don't like it from a fan's perspective, but you're absolutely right. Butch Jones has always been able to bring in talent, and I think it will, you know, translate much more at Arkansas State than it did at Tennessee. Uh, all right. Well, with that, we have another stat corner for uh, for our boy Nick here, and uh, week it is going to be success rate, which I'm I know I've heard of, but I'm not completely familiar with. So I'm going to be learning a little bit here too, Nick. So that makes two uh, of us. Let, let's go ahead, and I'm going to Baker Mayfield again, hand that ball off to Nick Chubb, and watch you run with it. <laughs> so uh, success rate, you know, it, it it for some reason maybe seems at first glance a little more complicated than it, than it actually is. It's basically just, was this a successful play? Yes or no? You know, it's, it's either a one or a zero or a check or an X. And the, the way we define it, it, it varies a little bit. There's a, you know, different uh, calculations in the NFL than, than in college football, but the, the uh, definition that, that they use at football outsiders for college football, which is also uh, what Bill Connolly, who we've referenced basically in every stat corner we've done so far, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Definition there is 50% of the yards that you need on first down. If it's first and 10, you know, a five yard play, that's a successful play. 70% of the yards that you need on second down. So if it's uh, second and three, if you get uh, what two of those yards, that's a successful play. If you convert for a first down, that's a successful play. If you fail to reach that, it is not. Then on fourth or third or fourth down, you must move the chains. So you have to get what you, you know, 100% of what you need first down or touchdown for it to be a successful play. So, you know, uh, it, it's six, uh, success rate is important because it adds context. So, you know, you could look at any 15 yard gain and, and there are certainly uh, times where I'll put, you know, a bunch of different, uh, things in a table, you know, this team had uh, 25 game running plays of 15 yards or more and, you know, had this explosive play rate because we think of a 15-yard run as an explosive play. Well, a 15-yard run doesn't do very much good if it's third and 25, right? So even though that would be an explosive play in another category, it's not a successful play because you didn't get that first down. And, you know, even even then, even if we said, OK, uh, you know, it made it for a uh, you could go for it on fourth. It wouldn't be close enough 
still to make it a, a successful play. So anyway, it, it success rate, yes or no? Was Did you do what was needed to do uh, to, to get a successful play and additionally some some context to where, you know, sometimes a one yard, sometimes one yard is all you need. And that makes sense. So third and one, fourth and one, yeah, move the chains. That's a successful play. But third and 25, if you get 24, not a successful play. You didn't do what you needed to do. So once, you know, once you you just sort of realize, okay, what what is my criteria and did I meet it or not? You know, it's it's a little bit easier to understand, but you're just trying to, you know, move the sticks, uh, get chunks of yardage on first down, get close to, uh, you know, moving, uh, getting a first down on, on second down, and then do what you need to do to get a first down or a touchdown on third or fourth down. So uh, as we've done in the past, take a look at, at who are the top 10 and bottom 10 in success rate, and then net success rates, not really something you hear often, but uh, I still like to, you know, calculate that out as well. I think on the net always gives you a little bit better uh, feel for how well a, a team performed overall on the whole. But offensively, you know, the top uh, success rate teams, Alabama and Kent State were the only two teams that finished above 50% in success rate nationally. BYU and Western Michigan were very, very close, 59.5 or better. Ohio State, Air Force, Florida, Liberty, Oregon, Buffalo, Texas A&M, and Coastal Carolina were all right at uh, between 47% and 49%. So, you know, consistently moving the chains, consistently uh, scoring points, getting first downs, all that good stuff. On the flip side, defensively, TCU was the best team in the country, had the lowest success rate, uh, under 30%. UAB was up there consistently, statistically, a very, very strong defense. Wisconsin, Cincinnati, Boise State, San Diego State. It, it shouldn't surprise folks that these are teams that rank really high, you know, toward the top of the leaderboard in scoring defense, in total defense, uh, and, and in a lot of cases in rushing defense. They're the ones who are consistently able to get off the field, get the ball back to their offense. So, uh, you know, Tulsa was a really, really strong defense last year. They finished 10th. Appalachian State consistently, statistically speaking, one of the best defenses in the country. West Virginia was one of our top performing teams, top uh, defensive team performance teams in the country. So a solid top 10 there. On the net, how do they, uh, you know, uh, offensive success rate minus defensive success rate? What's the, the uh, you know, biggest number we're looking for here? The national champion, pretty significant uh, lead at number one. 18.8 percentage points Alabama uh, was in the positive on success rate. BYU was at a little over 15. Clemson, 11.5. Those were the only three above 10. And then going down from there, uh, between you know 9.6 and 8.9, we had Oklahoma, Appalachian State, Buffalo, Iowa State, Air Force, kind of an interesting one, Boise State, and Texas A&M. Success rate, uh, usually – Service academy teams, triple option teams do pretty well offensively in, in success rate. So that's a, that's a reason why Air Force uh, is, is higher there. You know, they were sixth offensively because they're just getting three yards here, four yards there, and then pick up a big, you know, a, a big uh, gain if, if somebody doesn't play their responsibility on the option well. Go for it a lot and fourth and short. Those are easier to get. So it, it's not a surprise there. But Air Force also, you know, 
plays pretty pretty solid defense as well. But we won't go into to all the the bottom end of the leaderboard. But on the net, you know, the worst team in success rate last year, net success rate was UMass. I mean, it wasn't even close. Almost twenty three and a half percentage points. The next uh, worst was Kansas at seventeen point nine. Then it it starts to you know get a little. Uh, it starts to move a bit. Utah State was very close to Kansas, 17.7. But then you get Akron at 14, Cal 12.5, bit of a surprise there. But Cal, in a small sample, was was not very good in success rate. Syracuse, little lifts in 12.5. And then we're, we're into the 10s now with ULM, Bowling Green, Illinois, Vanderbilt in net success Ooh. rate. Not a surprise. Those teams didn't win a whole <laughs> lot of games last year. Uh, I mean, so 10%. Ooh, that's yeah, ugly. Nick, yeah, exactly. So uh, we've talked about our goal board before. What we're going to put on the goal board and, and track next year is, you know, what does a top 10 offensive team look like in success rate? Pretty much 47%. If you're at 47% or better, you are a top 10 uh, caliber offense defensively you want to be under 35 so uh yeah. if we did the net on that a a plus 12 net success rate you know then we're talking elite elite alabama byu were the only two better than that clemson was very close but you know everybody else being under 10 so a a top 10 net uh team and as far as success rate goes we're going to shoot for nine we're going to shoot for plus nine there and that would get you top nine in in 2020 but texas a&m was right at 8.9 so uh that'll give us a, a goal to shoot for and you know next year as we're going through the box scores and looking how a success rate uh we're, we're looking for teams that were plus nine on the net 47 percent or better offensively 35 percent or less defensively for, yeah. for uh, success rate. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for us today. Remember, you can follow us all on the Twitter at Bogman Sports for me, at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Trist, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And please check out the Patreon if you would, patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Mm-hmm.